Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Andy Wood, who is a musician, songwriter, and teacher out of the Knoxville, Tennessee area. Grew up in a family bluegrass band with his grandfather and cousin, and Andy began on the mandolin and acoustic guitar before later picking up the electric guitar. He began at a really, really early age, and even though he's well-versed in multiple styles and genres, he cut his teeth in the blindingly fast world of bluegrass flat-picking, which served him well later on, supporting assets such as Rascal Flatts, Scott Stapp, Gary Allen, and Sebastian Bach. This dude is actually a monster guitar player, and he has something that reminds me a lot of the... URM Unstoppable Recording Machine Boot Camps I used to run, the Andy Wood Woodshed Experience, which is a four-day in-person event where he collects some of the most amazing musicians on the planet, and you just live with them, learn from them, hang out with them. It sounds amazing. Just go to woodshedexperience.com to find out more about that. And of course, we'll talk about it on the episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Andy Wood, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Dude, what's up? It's good to be here. It's good to have you here, man. I'm excited to talk to you because you're going to answer something that I have long been very curious about. What a way to set it up, man. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I've been very curious about this because I come from a classical background and metal is kind of what has made my life. And so I'm familiar with virtuosity like intimately in a classical setting and metal setting and, you know, recognize it when I see it in other genres. Okay. And everybody knows that jazz and country have some of the best players on the planet. No one ever argues that, but man, anytime that I've seen bluegrass players, I'm like, Oh my God, like what is going on here? These people are incredible, but I never have really like heard about what goes into getting that good. If it's like, if they train it the way that classical players train it, is it like a discipline thing? Like what goes into that? Man, the snarky answer is boredom is a powerful ally. I mean, <laughs> that's not snarky. The, the truth is bluegrass is a very simplistic form in a lot of ways. And it's very complex in other ways. The simplistic form is usually there's not really dense extensions in harmony. The simplistic thing is there's not a lot of odd time signature 7 or 13 or anything like that. But it's very difficult because the the physicality of it. The speed. I, before you even get to speed, I would say the physicality. You're usually playing an environment with a fiddle player and a banjo player and an upright bass. These instruments are just innately very loud. So to have your lead lines cut through the mix on a big dreadnought guitar with 13s on it, uh, you have to be you have to be more a physical player. And then on top of that, you add in some of the brisk ambitious tempos that uh, bluegrass players like to play at. You know, like anything else, it's how much time you put into it. But unlike a lot of genres, bluegrass is a very communal genre. In a lot of modern metal and a lot of quote-unquote Instagram guitarists, uh, you can take that how you like. But in a lot of that society, it's one guy with his rig, modeler, uh, computer, and they make a complete thought, program drums, everything, right? It's yes. all done yep. with one person, right? Whereas bluegrass is a communal thing. You're jamming with other people. A lot of times the recordings are just cut on the floor, just live. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, it's something that requires the actual interaction of other people. And in a lot of ways, that, that that's a lot like jazz. And in bebop and bluegrass, bebop, you would play the head of the tune. Everyone would take a solo over the form of the changes, and then you'd play the head of tune, and you would get out. Sa- same way with with bluegrass, Salt Creek or Gold Rush or any of those tunes. But to get to the level to where you can hang, like, is there not a moment or an extended period in a bluegrass player's life where they do kind of need to be by themselves in the room just to get there? Or is this something? Oh, I mean, that's just good old fashioned practice. I think that that, that crosses every genre, right? Like that's just like, there's the thing of practicing at home and knowing your instrument in bluegrass. You know, there's a lot of weekend festivals, bluegrass festivals, you know, fiddlers competitions and things like this, where the communal aspects, almost like you're training during the week, you're practicing at home, learning new tunes, uh, learning uh, different things in, in different albums. And then on the weekend, you go to the bluegrass festival and you jam with other players, right? So I guess that's the chance to try it out in real life. Exactly. And, and, and I keep I keep harping on this like cultural type of thing where it's very, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a lot like some, you know, the gospel churches where guys will woodshed all week and then come into the church on Sunday and, and, you know, play what they got, you know. You know, that's the one thing that I really do think is missing from the whole, the Instagram guitarist world. Through Riff Hard, that's like a big part of our student base. And so I'm observing playing and they're playing. And, you know, there are some amazing talents out there that you can find on the internet. But one of the things that I've noticed is that what's missing is the real life side of it and the real life side of it, which I think comes from pressure. So the pressure of being in a room with other people where you have to sound good, the pressure of having a song that a label is waiting for, that's going to be released, the pressure of a tour coming up, just the pressure of being on stage in front of lots of people, like all these, that type of pressure, the real life type of pressure, there's a level that you get to that you can't get to by yourself because you cannot simulate that kind of environment. You can't simulate that adrenaline and you can't simulate what your mind and uh, physiology go through having to adapt to it. Turn the podcast off. Because that's the biggest point that can be made, and we just end here. All right, it's been a pleasure. That's the best, right? It's been great. But no, you're 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 so right. You're so dead on right there. It's like playing standing up, you know, in front of a crowd. There's no do overs. There's no second chances. If you break a string, how do you get out of that? If you you know your pedal stops working, your rig goes down, how do you get out of that? Much less can you just get through the songs, and then much less can you can you put a group of songs together that makes sense. Much less can you put together an entertaining show. It's one thing to be good at guitar, and it's one thing to do music. It's another thing to be musical. Absolutely. How do you define it? Being musical. You already did. In a lot of ways, it's taking those pressures and being uh, not necessarily musical, but just like the overall value of what it means to me to be a guitar player and, and an entertainer. Those go go hand in hand. And to be musical means to speak the language, to be able to communicate to someone in the audience that is affected by by your playing, by your music, by your message on a deeper level than 
wow, he really nailed that extended sweep finger tap thing. Like, right? Like, that's a shtick. I look at those things in guitar playings as like a gag and a joke, like a, like the mu- like the magician's punchline, right? It's yep. really about the story that sets up the gag, right? And in, and in most situations, musically, I don't even like that kind of thing. Um, I do love a lot of chops. Obviously, we all do. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I mean... You know, Tony Rice had more chops than a lumberjack, right? But he was an entertainer, and he could tell a story. Eddie Van Halen could tell a story. Like, right now is a complete thought. That's a complete musical statement. Jump is a complete musical statement that is entertaining to those that don't play guitar. And to be musical, music is, to me, it's the language, you know, of a higher power. If you're a religious person, that's the language of God. You know, it's like... Music is something that's transcendent to where you don't have to speak English or German or Japanese. You don't have to speak those languages to hear something that affects you emotionally. And to me, that is the goal of being musical. Yeah, and I've always thought that the reason that it, you know, you've heard, we've all heard the cliche that it's the universal language, but the proof that that's true is the fact that a band can go to a part of the world where they don't speak the language and no one in the crowd understands their lyrics and still have the entire crowd singing along. Amen. Yeah, because they feel it. That's it, man. That's that's what it is to be musical. Yeah, well, th- that's something you do not get in your bedroom. Right. And that, that comes from performing with other musicians and being inspired by the players around you. It's a lot like I heard Brian Sutton talk about how it's very similar to improv comedians. You know, in improv comedy, there's the term of yes and, where it's like you, we're improving and we're riffing on stage. And your job is to say yes and, and you take that baton and and they acknowledge your, your solo and they take the baton into their solo. Um, you know, it's like if a mandolin player ends with dig a dig a dig a dig a dig a down down, maybe the guitar player comes into his solo with dig a dig a dig a down 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 and acknowledges a little bit of that rhythm, right? That's that taking that baton, yes, and. And then the guitar player takes his solo, and hopefully that baton keeps being passed around. Uh, the the musical environment. Now, obviously, I'm talking about bluegrass, but this is something that transcends into jazz too, right? Especially with great jazz records, you know, Wynton Kelly, uh, West Montgomery, smoking at the half note, like they're really tuned into each other. You know, I would say even in a metal context where things are not improvised, but you have say guitar duos and bands with two lead guitar players, if they're trading solos, the best ones always historically, the best ones are the ones where it sounds like they're having a conversation and they're continuing the conversation. Like Dave Mustaine, Marty Friedman, for instance, back in the old days of Megadeth, when they would do dual solos, it definitely, one would take over and it was carrying the song forward, carrying the idea forward. It wasn't just like my turn to show off. Now it's your turn to show off. Now it's my turn to show off again. That's exactly right. That's what I mean by that yes and kind of comparison, that yes and metaphor that uh, I think in my opinion, and, and listeners might disagree, they might agree, I don't know. But in my opinion, improvisation and composition are the same thing. One just happens a lot faster. Yes, One's in real time. Yeah. I don't ever want to sound like a snob when I speak about improvisation because that's very easy to do. And it's not a comparative thing because obviously like Rachmaninoff and Mozart and Bach, they didn't improvise. They were writing and it's brilliant. Still the greatest stuff ever, you know. And as a person that loves heavy music and metal, I mean, I really have my favorites in that genre. But you're so right. Those 
two guitarists, and it doesn't have to be two guitarists, it be two instrumentalists, right? Like hearing mm-hmm. George Brutus and John Petrucci play together. It's like there's that yes and thing with their solos. Absolutely. I think that regardless of genre, if there isn't, not necessarily a conversation, but I guess a cohesive musical statement that everyone is on the same page about and then able to, I guess, converse musically about it, then what do you really have besides if you're looking at a non-improvisational context where everything is pre-written, if you don't have that, it's just a bunch of random stuff. And then if you have that in an improvisational context where people are not on the same page, basically you don't, you don't have anything but a, a glorified show-off session basically glorified wank time. It needs to have that cohesive element. The players have to be on the same page, in my opinion. And that just, that that scopes out into what we were talking about when you asked me, what does it mean to be musical? That's what it means to be musical. The conversation. Yeah. It means for it to be something that the two players in our, multiple players in a band, not just two players, multiple players in a band are communing with each other and they're hearing each other. They're listening to each other. They're, they're telling and crafting that story, you know, Led Zeppelin, their prime rush, you know, Van Halen, whoever. And then the audience gets that story from the listener's perspective. And I really believe you've, you've transcended and become musical when you are, emotionally impacting people that do not play instruments. I agree. But I think if you're emotionally impacting people that do play instruments, like, of course, that's the given though, right? (laughs) No, not necessarily, not necessarily because people who do play instruments, they have that filter thinking about it from the perspective of someone who plays an instrument. So like, you know, a director watching somebody else's movie and recognizing the lighting and the type of cameras used that it can take him out of the movie. Like a musician watching another musician, listening to another musician, they can like approach it from a job-like standpoint, an analytical standpoint where they're not listening like a listener. They're listening like it's their job and analyzing what's going on and not in it. If you can bypass that filter with your music to where someone who does know music is emotionally touched by it. I think that that's, that's really crazy. Yeah. So I would, I was going to ask you then the question of like, would that be not being musical at the highest levels then if someone is still analyzing and dissecting your stuff, for example, I'm surrounded by a lot of great players. And when we go to shows as friends or whatever, we, we hear somebody that affects us, you know, they knock us out of being a player because they're with their musicality. So that's, that's the thing that I was going to ask you. It's like, if they're hearing it and dissecting it, it's like, well, are we being as powerful as possible? No, that's, that's my point. It has to knock you out of your musician brain and knock you into your fan of music brain. Yeah. Yeah. So if your music's powerful enough to take, especially an educated musician and get them to forget that they're an educated musician and just enjoy themselves, that's some incredible power musically, I think. Yeah. I try really hard to not listen with that analytical brain, but like I can't turn it off unless the music is just speaking to me in a certain way. The music will turn it off for you, right? Yes, exactly. That's right. And then I can go back and uh, figure out what was going on, why it was so cool. But I prefer to be knocked out of that state completely and just be able to enjoy things. Yeah. So in your opinion... Where does practice come into this, like developing musicality and 
getting to the point where you can even communicate with other people like where does personal practice come into this from my my lifetime i've always looked at music as something that i never practiced okay it was a very family centric thing for me my grandfather got me started when i was about 5 years old 6 years old uh, my cousin and myself we played bluegrass in a little trio with both of us and our granddad and we'd sit on the front porch and learn kenny baker and bill monroe tunes and play bluegrass with him. Um, that was just something that we did. It wasn't looked at so much as a practice thing, even though obviously the hands are on the instrument, you know, hours upon hours of the day, but it was less of a regimented, I'm going to do this 15 times a day. Like I'm saying Hail Mary's right. Like it was never that kind of thing. And when I went to college, but for, for music, uh, by the time I went to college, I'd already been playing a good 15 years, you know, or whatever. I started learning the ins and outs of the connective tissue from a communication standpoint, right? Like understanding the way theory works, understanding the terminology, understanding different perspectives upon modal playing, etc. And uh, but but even then, I was still learning tunes that I like to play tunes that I like with with you know when i was 17 years old i was working professionally in a theater in pigeon forge i was clubbing at night and so you know i was out there getting my teeth kicked in by all the older musicians and that was something that when i went home i was yes i was practicing but i was never sitting there regimented it was like putting on some song that i wanted to be a better player at and i would just jam along with that song very much from a more I hate to be cliche, but a little more of that language type of thing, a little more linguistic, like trying to hear and, and play from a dynamic interpretive kind of thing. Obviously, I was a little before the YouTube thing. I remember me and Martin Miller and Rick Graham and Andy James and Tom Quill and all us guys were on Petrucci Forum when that stuff started, when the technology got to the point where we could post videos, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously all of us, we kind of predate that technology or we're cusp kids or whatever you want to call it. So it wasn't as simple as jumping on somebody's channel and, and getting the notes of a solo kind of handed to us so that jamming along with things and playing out live that was my practice you know that was where the ten thousand hours were or whatever you want to call that thing interesting there was no like in the woodshed by yourself for i'm still there brother okay to me like it was just it was never a thing where i sat and i said all right it's time to learn everything about the super locrian mode and i'm gonna so this is fascinating yeah, it was never like that. To me, it was trying to find the shortcut to understand the sonics and the 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 audio aspect of the things I was hearing. For example, all right, for example, Simpsons theme, right? Danny Elfman, mm -hmm. uh, sharp four kind of sound. Like instead of thinking of a Lydian thing and spending all this time beating up my brain to try to memorize this semantic grammatic obsession that we think we need to know, right? That is like, oh, well, playing a, you know, whatever, like a G major scale against a C, like playing C to C against a G major creates this. Like, that just sounds like long, long algebra calculus. That sounds like too much work to get to the point of one, two, three, sharp, four, five, six, seven, one. There. There it is. Like, to me, I was always looking for a way... What's the shortest way to get to the point of the music? And so that kind of search was a lot more enjoyable. It was never felt like practice. It was never memorizing definitions. It was never, from a technique standpoint, you know, everybody's like, what exercises did you do to become the alternate picker you are? And I'm like, I've never done an exercise in my life, 
ever. I was playing along with records. I was trying to figure out how to play Bela Fleck things. Bela Fleck is a banjo player. Obviously, he has three picks to a flat picker's one, right? So I, there was no method on how to do it other than just sit and listen to it and interpret that. And my interpretation is where my cross-picking came from. You know, I, I could cross-pick before I even knew who Steve Morse was. But then when I discovered Steve Morse, I was like, oh, he does that thing that I love. And he does it in this other way. Now I'm going to learn to play Stress Fest or Too Many Notes or whatever, right? It was, it's all about the tunes with me. It's all about the song. It's all about the tunes. It's all about the expression. It was never about this regimented, oh, I need to put three hours in today playing over a 251. It's like, no, you don't. You need to go play Billy's Bounce and Scrapple from the Apple. You don't play 251s, go play tunes. There. So all the two five ones in the world are in every bebop song. I think that to do it your way, which actually I think that this is of, like I said before, I find this fascinating. To do it your way, what you need to have, which I think not everybody has, is you need to have this level of self direction and obsession that will guide you in that towards those things to where, like you said, the Simpsons theme or whatever, you hear that, and then your brain takes you to that place to where it starts figuring it out and you're compelled to figure those things out. But I feel like there's a lot of people who don't, it's like they don't have that chip in their brain, but they still want to get good at music. And that's where I think that some of the more regimented type approaches work because look, you got to put the time in. Yeah. So whether you're putting the time in uh, learning Super Locrian or the Simpsons theme or whatever, you got to put the time in. And if you're a person who is self-directed and like you have your own obsession about it and you have that chip in your head, that's great. To me, that's ideal. But if you don't, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do music. You just have to work around it, around the fact that you like you can't fake that. You can't fake that level of obsession, but you can create habits and be super disciplined about getting better at music to where even if like maybe you need a little direction from other people and maybe that's just what you got to do to uh to get to the next level is to have a basically like a workout routine for guitar. Like I'm going to do 2 hours of this today, 2 hours of that later today, etc. I think that there's a place for it, especially if like uh, your brain isn't naturally just telling you, okay, this is next. All right, sick. I love this. Okay, I'm going to consume this. Oh, what's this next thing? Boom. You, okay, let's jump in right there. You just nailed the most important word. I love this. That right there is like I was waiting on you to get there because I knew you were going to inevitably say it, right? So when you say that I have this chip in my brain, that chip was just called enjoyment. I am a mega video game nerd. I've played video games since I was on Nintendo, original NES, Super Nintendo, every console since then, talking Zeldas to Twisted Metals to Metal Gear, Gear Solid, all of them. I just love gaming, right? So inevitably, you get good at gaming. You get good at something that you really love. Here's something where I think guitar players come off the rails when they start treating music like a workout routine. Now, I don't disagree with you, and I want to I wanna make that a big asterisk. I don't disagree with you completely. Just a little. Just a little. I do disagree just a little. That's okay. It's just a little. And here's where I say just a little. Guitar players, we love musicians too, and humans, we love to... See somebody do something like, ooh, I want to do that. That's amazing. 
But maybe it's not the top thing we want to do, but we think we need to learn it because we should. Yes. To be good equals this. I should learn this. I should. I don't really like this, but I should learn this, right? That is not as powerful as being like, dude, I freaking love Tom Petty. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna absorb Tom Petty and all the things that make up Tom Petty. That's far more musically beneficial than thinking you should know the super Locrian mode. I, I actually think you don't disagree with me. Only chase that if you love it. And and again, it's like maybe I maybe it's just the wording of it, but I think the most important word that you said was love. And man, I loved the time yep. playing music and it was in that very that very way of like the way I love playing video games like i liked i I still to this day obsess over what's the right guitar for the sound and it's not because i'm trying to recreate anything i'm just like i love that journey and being in love with the journey i think yields greater results absolutely than when we get into this idea of what we should know and what we shouldn't know it's like man i have to be honest with you bro i will never be the finger picker that Tommy Emanuel or Brent Mason. I mean, one of the biggest, biggest, most important parts of my life was when I first started playing electric guitar. I was about 17 or 18 and I wanted to play like, it was Brent Mason that made me want to play electric guitar. And I tried the thumb pick because he plays with a thumb pick and two press on nails and uses his index finger to pop the strings. And it took like, dude, like 30 minutes. And I was like, this will never happen in my life. I can't do it this way. And then I started just going back to the flat pick and trying to transcribe through using hybrid playing, how I can get that sound. That was the most important thing for me. It was like, I can't do it his way, but I want to play it. Right. We can do it your way. And yeah. And like figuring out a technical, a truly where it's like, it's not cheating it either. It was like, I was looking for a way where I could play the correct notes to pick it apart. Right. And those, those required some interesting note per string things, right? It's not like metal where it's three string, three note per string, two note per string, two note per string. It's not that thing. Like Brent has a lot of really angular type things that happen. And those things are facilitated a lot easier from a finger picker standpoint. So I had to figure out a way to kind of mutate a cross picking with hybrid playing to play some of those lines or whatever. But that's all semantics. The point is, is I loved it and I was chasing it because I love it. And that takes us to your initial question where it's like, Hey man, how, you know, how much do you practice? Was there ever a point in life where you were in the woodshed? It's like, I was there, but it never looked like a woodshed. It looked Mm -hmm. like an open road. It looked like an open ocean. And I was just in my little dinghy out there floating. And that's the way I still look at it, right? You're just making me think of uh, one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life was when I went to Berkeley, I went there because I thought I should. More that my uh, mom thought I should, but uh, I didn't want to go. I I I had a very set path I wanted to follow, and I was all about it, but I went there and took some of the classes for a while. And that's where I realized I don't like playing this jazz stuff at all. Like I don't, it's not me. Tons of respect for people who do. And especially the people who are sick at it, they are amazing, but this is not for me. I don't enjoy it. I have no interest in it. I feel like, uh, my brain does not engage when I'm learning this stuff. Like I need to focus on the stuff that I'm into. And if I focus on the stuff that I'm into, that's what'll yield 12 hour days where I don't want to stop. That's what'll get me to where I want to go. Not like doing this Berkeley stuff because I feel like I should. And basically 
promising myself that I would never again do stuff with guitar or music because I thought that I should and only focus on stuff that inspires me that I love and like truly dedicate myself to that. That was one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life. And I have zero, zero regrets about it. And I really do think that from what I've seen with students, both on the production end and the guitar end, people trip themselves up too much with working on things that they think they should for some weird arbitrary reason, as opposed to going towards the things that they will naturally get obsessed over. That's right. And same way with the jazz thing, like it doesn't connect to you, doesn't speak to you. The ones that it speaks to, man, it's so funny that so many great jazz players dropped out of school or didn't. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like, 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 or never even went to school. Like, man, you look at like Derek Trucks's grip on, on Coltrane and all the stuff that he loves. It's like, yeah, man, he's not a bebop player, but that thing spoke to him and it connected with him. And you just see this fruition of how he found his voice and, and became you know, the greatest slide guitarist of all time, you know, you know, Wes Montgomery wasn't in school, you know, it's like Charlie Christian didn't go to Berkeley. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this irony to it that gets really good to me. Um, not to say there's anything wrong with jazz schools because, or schools in general, I think it's amazing. A school going to school for me really opened up my eyes to how small my, my, my ability was. Right. Mm -hmm. And it helped me understand that I needed to learn some things to be able to communicate with other musicians and make the process of, of creation more streamlined. So, I mean, you know, it's not that there's always good in everything and there, but you're right. Like choosing the path for yourself and, and finding, finding the way to where you're spending the most time on the guitar as possible. And the less time punishing yourself on like, well, man, I'm never going to be good if I can't alternate pick, you know, like freaking Aldi Miola or something. Well, guess what, man? Neither can Frank and Bolly or Alan Holdsworth and they did just fine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like I knew that Legato wasn't in my fold, and it's one of my favorite things on the planet is to get together with my buddy Tom Quell and and God, he's ridiculous. I, 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 I alternate pick everything. He, he legatos everything. So, so when we get together, it's always fun just to mush it up and see what happens. Right? It's uh, it's the nature of really uh, like harvesting the things that innately strike up your passion. Right? That's what keeps you out of that self-punishment thing that keeps the guitar in the case all the time. I really wish, or let me just say hope for people listening that they find that thing on the instrument or in music, because that thing is the difference. It What you just said, it is the difference between you just spending as much time as possible in a, in a happy state on the instrument moving forward and getting closer and closer to, I guess, that ideal in your head, as opposed to procrastinating it or not enjoying it or keeping it in the case and just, you know, seeing it as a drag. Yeah, it's like the, I see guys that beat themselves up because they're not Steve Morris or Eric Johnson. It's like, hey, man, nobody is. That's Eric. That's Eric's voice. Don't beat yourself up. You know, take what you can, pick up the things that you love from it, but you're never, you're at best, you're going to be the, the, the second best Eric Johnson. You know what I mean? It's like, you've got to do the thing that makes you, you and find the voice and the passions that make you want to keep your hands on the instrument. For me, it was just, 
you know, sense of discovery. I have musical schizophrenia. You know, I, I listen to Nasun Dorma, and then I listen to, you know, Little Cabin Home on the Hill, and then I listen to My Curse by Killswitch. It's like I just like a lot of different things. So for me, that that's that's what's always kept the music fresh, and uh, and and kept the journey fresh. You know, I think most importantly, it's because for a lot of ways, I consider electric guitar still my second instrument. You know. I still consider myself a mandolin player first. Interesting. So you see, you kind of see electric guitar as like a, almost like a side thing. Yeah. It's almost like a toy. You know what I mean? And, it's, and I truly mean that in the right sense, because it's like, man, after playing mandolin with the tension on the mandolin, that's so high and you have to press down two strings at once. And there is no legato. You have to pick every single note and all of you know, everybody in bluegrass wants to play at a freaking 200 BPM. It's like, it's such a physically demanding thing. Dude, when I pick up my Sir and plug into some pedals and a diesel, it's like it's like a joke. It's just so much easier to play, <laughs> you know. It's like wow. So it, it keeps it fun, you know, from that aspect. Basically, what I'm saying, and also, I you know, I guess I opened the door for the troll style comments to to be attached to it. I'm not saying guitar is easy. I am saying from a physical standpoint, it's less demanding than than a mandolin. I mean, fair enough. That's a lot like also uh, the whole concept of warming up on an acoustic that has 15s on it and then grabbing an electric that has nines on it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like the baseball bat with the weight on the end. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested about this legato idea. There's lots of players I know who feel bad about themselves for not being that good at it, but they just can't bring themselves to work on it that much because there's a bunch of other things they'd rather work on. And here you're just saying that's just not, just not your thing. Yeah, and I have to be careful treading there because if anybody's got my transcriptions, uh, shameless plug for Levi Clay, who's done those transcriptions. Uh, my albums, of course, there's a lot of legato and tapping and, and economy picking sweep type gag, <laughs> you know, things. There's legato in my playing. I just say that I'm not a primary legato player. Yep, like Tom. Yeah, and I'm at peace with it. It's like people that say Tom Quill does an alternate pick. It's like, well, he does. It's just not his primary avenue, right? Yeah, you've just discovered what your primary avenue is and and just run with it yeah like petrucci is an alternate pick guy does he have a ton of legato yeah you know he can do that but you know it's the primary avenue of like the way you deliver a note the core way that you like the instrument to sound does not come from your whatever overdrive pedal or your amplifier or even what kind of guitar you play it comes from how you want the tone to sound when you hit the strings what is it that you're delivering what what how what kind of intensity is coming into the string? Is it, are you playing with the flesh part of your finger? Is it a fingernail? Is it a thumb pick? Is it a metal pick? Is it a flat pick? How thick is are those picks? Okay, now go to the left hand. How hard do you press in with the left hand? You know, there's no right or wrong way. I guarantee you, Stevie Ray Vaughan was gripping that left hand. He could you know bend steel. It's just evident in the way he grips it. Steve Vai very light. Rick Graham is an extremely light touch in the left hand. You know, it's it's all about trying to spend time to discover the sound of the instrument in your head and how you want that sound to be. Like when when I say, what does guitar sound like? We all have a different version of that playing in our ears. And so chase that one. And if it's a legato-y sound, naturally run with it. If it's not that kind of sound, go with the one that you sound like. Again, it's just obsessing over man, I, I'm never going to be quote-unquote good at guitar because I don't sound like Holdsworth. It's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I've heard so many players get obsessed on these semantics. I've got students that I've, I've hopefully 
And I feel like I've helped them. They've come to the camp and they've been around so many different styles of players. That's a very important thing about the woodshed camp is that, you know, we've got Tosin Abasi next to Brent Mason, next to Mark Terry, next to Greg Cock. Those are like apples and bicycles. You know what I'm saying? But the biggest example is those are all guys that excelled at finding the voice in their head. That is a great example, actually. Well, all those guys. Tosin's a great example because the stuff he does is so nuts, but he's not doing the things that so many guitar players beat themselves up over. He found his own thing. And good place to talk about the woodshed. So tell me more about it. It's happening at the end of August. Lineup killer. Tell me more. So this is our third year of doing the Woodshed Guitar Experience. And the conversation that you and I are having, it like gets me so fired up, dude. It's like I've been smiling this whole time because it really is, you know, a happy enjoyment passion. It's like me talking about cars or something like I love this stuff. And the number one thing that, you know, the business partner on the camp, his son plays guitar. And that's where he approached me. He's like, hey, man, do you want to kind of do this? And I was like, I got one rule. I choose the players, you know. And that's because I don't believe in, you know, these walls and these barriers of genres. And I want to share that. Just the exa- the conversation that we just talked about. That's what's important. Tosin sounds like Tosin and nobody else. Brent Mason sounds like Brent Mason and nobody else. And I want to hear those two guys together. I want to hear what both of them have to say about their journeys. It's fascinating. Because they're equal. I mean, like Brent, Brent, Brent is the most recorded guitar player in Nashville. Like history, he's played on thousands of sessions. Outside of that, he's a vicious bebop jazz player. He's the the you know he is the Telecaster. I mean, he changed the game. It's like freaking Eddie Van Halen of the Telecaster of Nashville Telly, right? And then on top of that, I've I've really tried to bring in players and legacy players and new players. Like Mark Letary is one of the most expi- inspiring players of our generation. You know, here's a a kid that does the baritone thing. He plays the funk chops. He's got the chords. He's got the jazz. He's got the dirt. He loves rock. It's like, man, he sounds like nobody. You know what I'm saying? He sounds like Mark. And when I hear Andy Timmons, who we've had, and Greg Cock, like I always choose players that don't sound like anybody. They don't sound like anybody else. Like I don't make a shred camp to talk about the camp. I make a camp about music and guitar. It's four days, three nights, Everything's included, your lodging, your alcohol, your food, the sessions, the one-on-ones, the clinics, the concerts at the end of the night. We do concert at the end of the night. We fly a line array, live band, the whole deal. Uh, We've had Joe Bonamassa. uh, We've had Robin Ford. I mean, my gosh, Robin Ford is sitting there talking about the years he spent playing guitar with Miles Davis. You know what I'm saying? He let every camper play through Dumble Number 2. Like the talk to your daughter amp, the amp that was on stage with Miles, the amp that he's built his career on. He's letting people play his his old 60s telly through that that number. You know, it's like that's one of those things where like, holy crap, that's a fear of missing out thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like and totally the biggest thing we try to create. And and it's really important to me. This has been a, a, a mission statement is like everyone is VIP. Now, unfortunately, that means we've only got 100 slots. That's it. Because so often I've been in the pop country game as a side man, and I've been in, you know, I've toured with Scott Stapp when he was doing Proof of Life. I was his uh, musical director on that. And uh, I would see VIP situations where it'd be hundreds of people lined up and they get 10 or 20 minutes with their artist. That is not VIP. That's not, I mean, it, it's like 10 or 20 minutes of VIP. You know, I want to give people a weekend of it mm-hmm. where you don't have to stress and be like, hey, man, we signed this. What amp did you use on the record? And like, they're rushing. 
This sounds a lot like when I started URM, URM is the parent company of a Riffhard Unstoppable Recording Machine. It's basically the same thing as Riffhard, but for production. Before we put this site up, I started Unstoppable Recording Machine boot camps. This was in like 2014, 13, and 15. And what it was, was four days where it was me and I would travel to a city and find a really great artist in that city, you know, a metal artist that was very well known and awesome. And we would go to a studio and, you know, we would only have 20, 20 seats available and basically 40 hours of us, meaning me and the students there recording this artist. And basically, so I would show them how it's done and then they would take turns, you know, getting takes setting up mics and we'd go all the way from basic pre-pro to pretty much a mix in those 40 hours. Of course, some people were more, more into it than others, as far as, you know, having the courage to get up in front of other people and try to try to do something, but still the level of engagement and the impact that this had on the people who attended is incredible. Lots of those people have gone on to have actual careers in production. And they look at that as kind of the turning point because they got to be in the room with people who were doing the thing that they wanted to do at the level that they wanted to do it at. And they actually got to see how it's done. And so I think with your experience, getting the chance to be in a room with so many great players who are at that level and getting to talk to them and learn from them and just experience what, you know, what it actually means to be someone who has, who's basically great. Let's just say to be around greatness, like until you've been around it, it's hard to understand what it actually means. And I think that it's a really great thing for a student to come face to face with it and realize these are real people. First of all, they're not any different than anybody else. They're real people. If you wonder why they sound the way they sound, well, you're right there in the room with them and you realize that sound that you've been hearing all this time, that's them. And I feel like that type of learning that can only happen when you're right there in the room and it's transformational for lots of people. It's really deep. For sure, man. That's what the camp's about. It's about, you know, exposing guys that have only listened to blues to other things, exposing guys that only listen to metal to blues and vice versa. And, and understanding that music is a language and, I like it really encompasses our conversation, right? It's like being okay with things you can't do, but still celebrating and enjoying those things. And, and really like, man, I love what Tosin does. That's not, that's not my path. Mm-hmm. Right. I love what Mark does. That's not my path. And that's why we're all in the, there. And at the end of the equation, you know, my sound is what has helped me develop my career it's because i sound like andy wood you know what i mean it's like that's that's the thing that's beautiful about it and and cultivating your own inspirations to form the sound of the guitar that's playing in your head and sharing that with campers and being able to talk this kind of stuff without that pressure of a time frame you know it's amazing like it's life-changing man and then of course the jams that go into the wee morning it's like dude Mark Letary's over there playing bass on Kickstart My Heart with the campers, you know, and Brent Mason singing Superstition. Like, we jam till the wee hours in the morning. It's great. 
It's unbelievable. And it sits on this beautiful lakefront property out in, in about an hour outside of Nashville. I mean, we're just really blessed to be able to put it on. And if anybody is uh, interested, there's still a few slots left. It's at woodshedguitarexperience.com. That lineup this year encompasses so many great players. I'm probably going to forget one because we have so freaking many, but Nick Johnston, Tosin Abasi, Guthrie Trap, Brent Mason, Greg Cock, Mark Letary. Oh man, who am I missing? Tom Quayle's coming. Uh, our live house band's got Jim Riley, Josh Schilling, Daniel Kimbrough. I mean, our house band, our bass player is the guy that plays bass with Bailey Flake and Jerry Douglas. You know what I'm saying? It's like everybody's incredible. Everybody from one end to the other, you know? So it's, it's a really special event, man. Really special event. And this is a heavy lineup i'm looking at it right now it's stacked to the ceiling yeah that's awesome it seems like a great time and yeah woodshedguitarexperience.com that's it dude i want to thank you for taking the time to come on and chat it's been seriously awesome talking to you dude thank you for the just the awesome conversation you know as much as i love talking about what strings do you use what amp do you use like this was so much more fun man it really was well thank you yeah you know that kind of stuff i don't know you can just like type that stuff into google yeah you can go to the if someone's instagram (laughs) like seriously there you go (laughs) yeah honestly like the thing is podcasting is something i really enjoy doing when it's conversations like these And uh, with this podcast and the other one, like the other one, we talked to producers. I don't ask about like compressor settings and things like that is because, man, I'd be bored out of my skull. And also that kind of information is much better delivered in other formats, like video formats or just going to someone's Instagram page and looking up what type of string they use or whatever there's much better mediums for that than a podcast a podcast is about conversation and if i wasn't having these types of conversations and it was just like what kind of strings do you use i would have quit <laughs> would have quit a yeah. long time ago yeah right right for sure kind of full circle to what we were talking about on guitar like for sure got to do the thing that keeps you in the game you got to be inspired man you got to you got to chase the passion that's it man that's that's the message for me 100% well man thank you very much it was a pleasure awesome dude i will talk to you soon